You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, where we read, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Amen. What does it take? to be a successful team in sports? What does it take to be successful in uh, or on a team in team sports? Now, contrary to what your impression might be, it's not tattoos that makes you successful. It's not jail time or steroids. None of that is what makes you successful in the world of team sports. It's the team mentality. It's team dynamics. Now, tomorrow is one of my favorite days of the year of 2018, strictly because I get to veg out on the couch all day watching college football, my favorite sport. And I'm going to be watching Notre Dame take on LSU. I'm going to be watching Georgia take on uh, Oklahoma. And I'm I'm probably going to watch Alabama taking on Clemson if my headache is not too bad by that point. But... Those teams will only be as good as they work together. You know, my football coach in high school used to tell us, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And we used to have a chain that we would carry out on the field with us and that would stretch out on the sidelines and we'd put it there as a reminder that, listen, we were all linked together in this sport. You know, your assistant pastor here at Calvary Parish, Justin Golden, he likes to ride bikes. I didn't know that there were people that loved to ride bikes like him until I met him. But one of the things that he's done is he's gotten me out on the bike trail here in Paris. And I'm realizing there's a whole bike community out there. And, and it's a real sport. And it takes teamwork too. Why, just yesterday he had me out in the frigid cold temperatures, riding down the 196, you know, just... People driving by looking at us like, what are you guys doing out here, you know? But he, he was loving it. But one of the things that he taught me yesterday is that the, even in bicycling, there's this team concept of where he got right in front of me and, and told me to put my wheel right on his back wheel. And you know what that did? It made things so much easier for me. I was like, I went from <laughs> to going, you know, and I could like kind of rest a little bit. I just pedal a little bit and then I could just coast. I was pedaling a little bit and coast and I thought... Hey, this is awesome, you know. I need, I need Justin just to stay in front of me the whole way. And I'll make it. 
And I tried to get in front of him for about 30 seconds. That lasted, and then he had to take back over. But that concept of being a team, working together to get to the finished goal. That's what Paul's talking about today. And his main point in these verses is that rather than contention and strife within the team, God's team is meant to contend together for the kingdom and the glory of God. Our team, our church, is like a team. We meet on Sundays, but this is just halftime. This is the locker room speech, the the motivational speech, hopefully, from the coach that you get in your heart, and we break from here, and we go out and we execute the plays in the world where God has put us. But if we don't do that together, if we're divided, if we're full of contention and strife within, guys, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. We'll never make it. We'll never win the prize. And that's what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 4. It's our first point this morning. He's correcting a faulty perspective that existed in the church in Corinth. So he's correcting that faulty perspective in verses 1 through 4. Remember that Paul has discussed division for the first part of his letter. That's one of the main reasons he started this letter is because there was a lot of disunity in this church. There was preacher worship happening. Okay? The, the Corinthian church, they were divided, they were arguing, and they were worshiping their preachers, their leaders within that church. And they were saying, well, I'm of this guy. Well, this guy's the real spiritual guy, so I'm with him. And well, you guys don't do things right, so I'm following this guy. And they were dividing the church because of their pride, because of their worldly wisdom. Now, while preacher worship might have been the symptom The greater problem was that the Corinthian believers were operating in, like I said, a worldly way. They were not under the control of the Holy Spirit, which is what Christians are supposed to be. The word and in verse 1, it really connects the flow of thinking to what he's just talked about in verse 16 of chapter 2. You see, Paul in chapter 2 just finished explaining why the church does not operate in the wisdom of the world. He just told the Corinthian church, listen, you guys are not like the natural man who does not have the Spirit of God and therefore cannot understand the things of God. You guys are different. He tells them that you, in fact, have the very mind of Christ. However, because of their immaturity, because of their failure to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, he now needs to correct their faulty perspective of themselves. Now, while there can be no doubt that these Corinthian believers were saved, they were indeed saved, they were carnal. They had a a faulty perspective of their own lives, and they were in need of a course correction. How many of you guys have ever had a course correction in life? I I know I have had several course corrections in my life as well. Uh, One of them, I I believe this was from the Lord. Uh, I I wanted to play college football. It was a dream of mine, and I was working towards that end when mysteriously I uh, broke my ankle. I I had been picked to play in an all-star game for uh, Nevada, the state of Nevada, where I went to high school, and we were getting ready for that game. And the day before the game, uh, which there were going to be some college scouts that had written letters, and we had had correspondence and things like that, and I was getting ready to play, and and, uh, on the day before the game, the coach said, hey, I need a kill man for the punt team. And that just means somebody that runs down the field and 
you know, kill somebody. So that's what I, I, I said, oh, I'll do it, you know, and I just trotted out there. And randomly, I wasn't even, it was just a scout team play, and I ran down the field as fast as I could and slipped in a water puddle and fell on my ankle just like this, and it snapped and had a spiral fracture, and, and I didn't get to play in the game, and God changed the course of my life from there. And instead of going to college where I don't know what, what that would have done to me, I was not really strong in the Lord at that point in my life. I was really nowhere with the Lord, to be honest. But instead, he directed me into the Marine Corps. And it was in the Marine Corps, believe it or not, where God really got a hold of my life. And I know that oftentimes it can be the opposite for, for, for several uh, or for, for others. But for me, God used the Marines to actually get a hold of my life. And to straighten me out and to get me into fellowship, it's the first time I ever attended a Calvary Chapel where I heard the Word of God being taught in a clear uh, way that I could understand and where the pastor was getting on me to read my Bible every day. First time in my life, a pastor told me to go read my own Bible. You know, believe it or not, I've been in church my whole life, and, and the pastor told me to read my Bible. It was a novel concept. I was like, what? <laughs> read my own Bible? <laughs> but... That was a course correction. Another course correction happened when Rebecca and I were going through a tough time in our marriage. And I thought it was all her. You know, actually, percentage-wise, I thought it was 90% her and 10% me. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to reach out to my pastor and get some help. And so I reached out to my pastor, Pastor Rob Salvato. And he and his wife, along with another pastor, they came alongside of us in our marriage and they helped us work through the issues. And guess what? It was the other way around. I was 90% of the problem. <laughs> I just didn't realize it. I just had the plank in my own eye, you know? And I thought, I thought I was, here I was a spiritual guy. But one of the things that helped me to see that was the most impactful for me was that my life as a man needed a course correction. And how did I see it? Well, Pastor Rob used the Word of God. To show me that my life on a daily level was not adding up to what I was called to be and what I was called to do. I was missing the mark. The Word of God is useful for correcting our false beliefs and for reprimanding our false behavior. That's what Paul's doing. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, let me read it to you. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So listen, guys, the Word of God has been given to us, and as we study it here on Sunday mornings, you have the opportunity to be reproved, corrected, instructed, so that you can be complete as a man of God, as a woman of God. And that's what we're doing here this morning. And that's what Paul is writing to these believers about. He's first of all correcting their false belief. That's sub-point A. Their false belief, they were trusting in worldly wisdom. If you're filling in the blanks this morning, they were trusting in worldly wisdom. Read verse 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 3 uh, uh, with me once more. We read, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. Even now you are still not able. You know, Paul starts off, and, and again, he uses that word brethren. Note that. 
I love how Paul comes in so uh, sweetly. He doesn't come in, you know, like, a, like one of those, well, for lack of a better example, a harsh Baptist preacher, okay? You know, or, or maybe a Phil McKay on a Christmas Sunday when I'm teaching on hell, you know? I, I can't believe I did that. But anyways, Paul comes in softly with, a, with a, just a soft He says, brothers, and he comes alongside of him. He reminds him, look, I'm your brother in the Lord. And, and as your brother, I've got a concern for your welfare. I love Paul's heart. Oh, that you would develop a heart like Paul. A heart to come alongside of brothers and sisters and say, Brother, I love you too much to let you get away with this. Brother, I love you too much to let you just leave the church quietly without ever saying anything. Guys, what would happen if you guys, when we uh, notice that somebody leaves the church and we go, Hey, I remember there was a person that used to sit right here and they haven't been here for the last few weeks. I'm going to call them and check on them. We'll see how they're doing. We'll see what's going on just to make sure that everything's okay. What if we had that heart like, a, like, like Paul has for the other Corinthian believers to come alongside of them as a brother, a sister in the Lord? That's all we are. That's all we really are. Paul also gives an accusation in these verses. His accusation is that while they themselves may have thought that they were spiritual, the reality was is that they were carnal. And that word carnal, it's, it's not carnal, okay? It's not that Mexican slang word for bro, okay? I don't know if you guys knew that, but carnal is uh, bro in Mexican slang. But Paul is referring to them carnal. That means carnal. It means, hey, you're, you're just fleshly. You operate in the realm of the flesh. These believers thought they were mature, but in reality, they hadn't even matured past the basics in Christianity. Uh, I want to read Hebrews chapter 5 to you. If you have your Bible, flip over to Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. It's a few books to the right. You'll pass through all the, all the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians series. Pass first and second Timothy and Thessalonians. Get to Hebrews chapter 5. And look at verse 12 with me. We're going to read through verse 14. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 to 14 says this. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us there, guys, is that, hey, a lot of Christians in the church are still babies. Because they have not grown in their walk with the Lord. And the reason they have not grown is because they are not walking in obedience. Their senses, verse 14, have not been exercised to discern between good and evil. They're not listening to the voice of the Lord. And they're not discerning between good and evil. They're just kind of there. And they're not seeking to grow. They're not digesting the word. They're not taking in the deeper principles of life. Listen, solid spiritual food, the deeper truths, the principles of life that God wants us to learn, 
They're only discovered when we live in obedience to the first ones, to the basic principles, to the thing that God is telling us to do. If he's telling us, hey, don't watch movies like that anymore, then we need to listen to him. If he's telling us not to go to places like that anymore, we need to listen to that. If he's telling us to give something up, we need to pay attention to that voice. And as we discern the good and the evil there, we begin to grow as our senses are being exercised. Just like when you go to the gym and you work out a muscle, you're working out that muscle, it's being exercised, it begins to grow. And you need to feed it with protein. If all you're taking in is milk, man, you're not going to grow. You're going to grow weaker. And that's what happens. So do you want to grow? Do you want to mature? Then we have to confront the, the faulty perspective in our own lives first. We need to examine our lives to see if we, like the Corinthians, are living our lives according to the flesh, trusting in worldly wisdom instead of godly principles. I confess that this is often my own finding. When I look at my own life, often I battle with this. If we are all honest with ourselves, we will discover that the measuring stick for maturity is not another person, but rather it is Jesus Christ himself. So how do we know if we're guilty of a faulty perspective this morning? If you're sitting there, you're wondering, okay, how do I know if I've, I've got this faulty perspective and, and I'm a baby in Christ still? How do I know that? Well, remember the litmus test in, in science class where you have the little litmus paper, the blue turns to red in an acid, it remains blue in a base compound, or if you have the red litmus paper, then it turned blue in acidic and, and, and remained uh, red in a, I'm sorry, remained red in an acidic compound and turns blue in a base compound. Well, that's the litmus test. Well, the litmus test for our spiritual maturity is found in our next subpoint, subpoint B, where we see false behavior. Envy, infighting, and division. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3 through 4 with me this morning. It says, For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Listen, guys, the litmus test for your maturity level is not your Bible knowledge or your church attendance. Or how good you look on a Sunday morning. <laughs> your litmus test for spiritual maturity is your actual behavior. Your everyday life. That word envy, circle it and, and write on your notes if you want to. Envy means painful or resentful awareness of an advantage that's enjoyed by another. And, it's with, and you have a desire to possess the same advantage. That's what envy is. You see somebody else that has an advantage in life. Maybe they're a good-looking person. Maybe they're a, a, a really friendly person. Maybe they're skilled in athletics. Maybe they have a technical knowledge that you wish you had. And you're looking at that person, and it's joined with the desire to say, hey, I want that same advantage for myself. That's what envy is. Strife. Circle that word strife, and the definition of that is arguing, bickering, or debating. Arguing, bickering, or debating is just a constant thing. You always have to be right. You always have to be right. You guys have heard me say this before. The wisest advice I ever got on the day of my wedding, a man walked up to me and he said to me, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And I just looked at him and I said, what do you mean? I said, 
Both, of course, you know. About a year into my marriage, I realized exactly what he meant, you know. But it took me about seven or eight years to really wise up and to go, okay, okay, I don't want to be right. Okay, I want to be happy. <laughs> it took me a really long time to get that point. But strife, it's arguing, it's bickering, it's debating, hey, I'm always right. I'm always the one that knows the best way to do things. Strife, division, division, circle that word, that means disunity and dissension. And dissension, which is a cinnamon, synonym, <laughs> cinnamon, let's go to Cinnabon and get a cinnamon roll, guys, I'm feeling it. Didn't have breakfast this morning. Dissension is a synonym of Division, and it means partisan and contentious quarreling. Just think politics, okay? Just think the current situation in our government at the, at the capital level, right? That's partisan and contentious quarreling. That's what we see happening. That should not happen in the church, guys. No matter what we might think of ourselves, it is our attitudes and actions that really tell the truth about our maturity level. God is not interested in how much Bible knowledge we have. There are plenty of Christians with lots of Bible knowledge. Yet they're living their lives under the control of their fleshly nature. They're destroying wives and children. They're destroying homes. They're destroying churches. And God is not okay with that. Again, I shared with you before about my own life. I was living just like these Corinthians. I thought I had it all together. I thought my marriage and family were great. I thought everyone else was the problem. I had a faulty perspective of myself. And I had a lot of false behavior that showed up. And it showed that I was not a person that was surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Listen, men. Listen, women. Hey, we need to examine our lives. We need to ask ourselves tough questions. And I'm going to ask those tough questions as we close our Bible study later on. I'm not closing right now, though, okay? just want to clarify. But God says over and over, guys, in the Scriptures, that he, or it isn't sacrifice that He wants. He, he doesn't want you to sacrifice in your life so that you read your Bible and pray every single day and come to church, and yet you're the worst person to be around in the world. He wants obedience. He doesn't want sacrifice. He desires that you be merciful and obedient. Listen, you can have all the Bible knowledge that there is. You can be a theologian. You can win the award for most church attendance in a year. You can even be a pastor. And yet you can be jealous and argumentative and cause division in people around you. And if you are, you're anything but mature. We need to wake up, church. We need to evaluate our lives. We need to compare ourselves with Jesus Christ. We need to compare ourselves with the principles of God's word. That's what the Corinthian believers were guilty of. Listen, what are we instructed to do if we come across people that are divisive and argumentative and all they want to do is bicker and fight and divide? What are we to do with them? Well, Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3. Flip to Titus chapter 3. Just past Timothy, First and Second Timothy, you'll find the book of Titus. It's before Hebrews. If you hit Hebrews, turn back. One book. Titus there. I'm sorry. Actually, two books. Philemon is sandwiched between Titus and Hebrews. 
Now, look at verse, uh, chapter 3. And I want to read verses 9 through 11 with you this morning. Paul instructs us what to do with the divisive person. He says, But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. For they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Paul says we're to reject them. What does that mean? He means that we're to break our fellowship with that person. Do we stop praying for them? No. We pray for them. But do we, and do we point them to the gospel? Yes, we share the gospel with them. We point them to Jesus. But do we fellowship with them? No, we need to break fellowship with them. And through the breaking of fellowship, there's a lesson being conveyed that, look, God takes this seriously. If you're a divisive man, hey, you're self-condemned and you're sinning. And God is not going to tolerate that in His church. The church is a family. It's a body. It's a unit working together, a team. One person that's sowing discord can ruin the entire mission. And so Paul says, reject them. Don't fellowship with them. Paul takes divisions within the church very seriously, and so should we. And just on a side note here this morning, I just want to say this, that a lot of times, guys, as a pastor, I I encounter Christians, both men and women, that just, they have this faulty perspective of themselves. They really think that they're just, (laughs) they're something else. And they think that they're God's gift to whatever situation they're in. But we really need to wake up. We need to allow God's word to sink into our hearts. We need to realize that, hey, uh, in humility, we need to allow the spirit to search us and to search our hearts. Because uh, so many times, uh, if, there's, if there's envy or striving, if there's a lot of strife and uh, dissension around us, guys, a lot of times we need to realize we could be the problem. We could be the ones that are the problem there. Now, after Paul has rebuked the Corinthians in the first four verses, he's now going to give them a new direction to work towards. And that's what our second point is all about this morning in your outline. Casting a focused vision. Casting a focused vision in verses 5 through 9. That's what Paul is going to do. He's going to focus the church. So since there's preacher worship happening there... He's going to show them that he and Apollos don't think of themselves as anything special. So he's correcting their false belief with a right belief. Subpoint A, that is, is that God gives the increase. Look at verse 5. God is going to give the increase. Who then is Paul, he says? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Notice the questions that Paul uses there in verse verse 5. He's calling attention to the position, not the person. If the Corinthian Christians had been asked these questions, they would have answered like this. Well, my leader is my everything. He's my guide, he's my teacher, my counselor, and he's also my hero. You see, they were guilty of worshiping their leaders. But Paul is telling them that neither he nor Apollos is anything more than just ministers. Now that word ministers in the Greek, it's also uh, can be translated as servants in the English language. In fact, several versions of the Bible do put servants there. That word servant, it's a low term. It, it's a term that just talks about someone that, you know, 
washes the feet of, of, of his master, does, does all the menial tasks, the, the, the tough things. That's what Paul and Apollos saw themselves as, not anything special. They just happened to be the men that God used at that time to lead the Corinthians to Christ and to grow in their faith. Now Paul backs this up by giving us this spiritual principle in verse 7 that it is God that gives the increase. Hey, there's a lot of workers, but there's only one God who gives the increase. We don't want to build a movement around a mere man. Movements become monuments to the past. And monuments die. Okay, movements can so easily turn into monuments to the past if we put our trust in mere men. So listen, we want to stay fresh. We want to stay flexible. We want to stay led by the Holy Spirit. He's our guide. He's our counselor. Now Paul's teaching here about right belief, that ministers are merely servants and not anything deserving of division. He now moves into the right behavior that this produces. The right behavior that we work together as one. Verse 8 and 9 says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. I love how Paul continues the illustration of a garden there in verse 8. You know, a garden is such a useful illustration when we're talking about the Lord and his people. By using the illustration of a garden, Paul shows us that, and that, he, that he and Apollos are not anything uh, near the gardener. They're not like the gardener. They're more like the tool in the hands of the gardener, which is God's. The church is God's garden. Preachers are just tools in His hands. In fact, we are all just tools in God's hands. You know, no one wants to worship a rake, right? When's the last time you went out to the shop and grabbed the, the rake and were just like, oh, rake, I honor you. I, you are amazing, you know? And then took it out and used it, you know, to rake up some fertilizer or something. You know, we don't do that. In the same way, we're exhorted here in the Word to give praise to the one who uses the tools. The one who is able to cause us to work in his garden to make it flourish for his glory. I love how Paul tells the Corinthians that he and Apollos are one. You know, that is, is such a key thing right there. To, to see ourselves not as opposed to other ministries here in Paris, Texas. Not to see, and there's a lot of them, right? That's kind of the joke around here. There's a lot of churches in Paris, Texas. You're planting another one? Really? Okay, wow. You know, it's interesting. But, hey, maybe we need another one. Whatever the, whatever the, 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 the cause that can bring us together and, and get more people in heaven, I'm okay with that, honestly. I think it's a good thing. You know how many people there are in the city and how many people are actually in church? There's a huge discrepancy, guys. We could use more people in church. So I'm all for that. But listen, we're not opposed to these other ministers and ministries. We're one. Working together, as long as we're united by the faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're working together as one. Now, there are some weirdos out there that are not united in the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? And I'm not saying that we, we were one with them. Okay, but we are one with those that are, are you know, believing in the essentials of, of the Bible, the essential doctrines. And Jesus Christ is God. So anyways, Paul wraps up his vision casting moment here with two metaphors in verse 9. He says, you're God's field. 
and you're God's building. And I just want to explore that real quick as we close this morning. You're God's field. What does that mean? Well, God sends his servants into his field. That's people like me and, and, and some of the other pastors on staff. And, and if you're a minister here, maybe even a volunteer, then God sends you into this church as a, his servant to plant and to water faithfully. The measure of success is not how great you are, but how faithful you are. That's the measure of success. And then the seed is the gospel. The gospel, the, the, the message that Christ crucified That's what it's all about. That's what we're to sow. That's what we're spreading. That's what we're planting. That's what we're all about, the seed of the gospel. And then the water is God's word. And the spirit of God works together with the word of God to produce growth, to produce fruit in our lives. We're God's field. We're together, one, God's field. But also we're God's building. I love that picture as well. God is into building people, not actual material buildings. So God is into building you. God is all about building your character. And I love that. Each person here is a living stone. The Apostle Peter talked about Christians being living stones. And we're being built up together. We're all connected to each other. Guys, we need each other. We're connected together to build and to form God's building. When one of us falls out, when one of us falls off or cracks and breaks, hey, we need that person. We need to reach out to that person. We need to find them. We need to bring them back. We need to love on them. We need to put them back together. We need that. We need each other. We're God's building. And God, and we're all connected to each other and being built by Christ's word. And the Holy Spirit is the electricity supply, guys. I'm not saying that to shock you, but the Holy Spirit is meant to, yeah, that was dumb, yeah. That was, Sajed go, you know. Anyways. The Holy Spirit provides the power, guys, in a very little sense. I'm not saying he's an it, he's a he. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. Without him, we're, we're useless. We got no light, we got no warmth. <laughs> we need the Holy Spirit in this building, guys. So listen, uh, as, as I close this out, I just think it's so awesome that God is about building and planting, that he uses those two metaphors I want to remind you this morning that God loves you. He's about building your life. It's about character, guys. The character that he is building in us in this life, it matters. It matters for all eternity. And he's making you and me. He's forming and fashioning us into who he wants us to be. But are we resisting that? The questions that we need to ask ourselves after today's message are as follows. Number one, am I a carnal Christian? Am I a carnal Christian that instead of living under the control of the Holy Spirit, I'm living for myself? It's all about me. It's all about my ambition. And I'm always right. Okay, so am I, am I a carnal Christian? Number two, is my behavior marked by arguments and bickering, infighting? Ask your wife that question if you're married. Wives, ask your husbands that question. Kids, if you've got brothers and sisters at home, ask your brother and sister, hey, do I bicker and argue with you a lot? Would you say that I'm an argumentative kind of a person? Ask your brother and sister that. Of course, they'll probably just say yes and laugh at you. But yeah, I love Pastor Phil's sermon this morning. Yes, you are argumentative. 
But maybe we need to hear it. Is my behavior marked by arguing and bickering? Number three, am I a divisive person who pridefully asserts that I'm right? Did you know that every time you assert that you're right and your way is right, hey, you're dividing people because others might not share that opinion. Other people might not share that opinion. And even if you are right, hey, sometimes we have to learn to give up our right to be right. That's what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ was right, but he gave up his right to be right when he went to the cross and died for your sins and for mine. There's a right way to do things, and especially in the church. And then number four, the last question this morning, am I envious of an advantage that someone else enjoys, and I secretly desire that same advantage for myself? Am I envying another person here in the fellowship? their position or their talents or their abilities? Am I envious of that? Ask ourselves. We need to be honest about that. Because if we are, we need to submit that to the Lord. We need to be freed up from that. Because that causes contention. It causes problems. This jealousy. We look at others and we try to think of ourselves as superior to them. Man, that is not an attitude that God is proud of in the church. He doesn't want that in His church. God's team is only successful as long as we can identify our problems and humbly confess them and submit ourselves to the control of the Spirit. We have to be dedicated to working towards the goal, which is to be like Jesus. The team that serves together stays together and grows together. And God is the one who gives the increase. So all glory and honor and power to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is able to use all of us together as one. Let's pray.